One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. We've got a packed show ahead this week. We've got an interview with recent Red Bull communications engineer Dan Drury, who runs the fun account on Twitter, Engine Mode 11. Plus, Matt Two Rumpets catches up with Summers F1 for some tech chat. So we'll play that out in half an hour or so. And we've got Kyle Power lined up for the Meet the Panel segment. Please do stay for the Kyle Power segment. Uh, it's a bit personal with these segments. We get to know people outside of the F1 realm. But we also had some some fun F1 chat about olden days F1. And uh, we had some fun engineering chat as well. So don't worry. There are plenty of grumpy middle-aged men on the show. Don't feel like you're missing out just because in this first segment, we are joined by two pointlessly young people. So first, it's motorsport PR guru, Chris Stevens. How's it going, Chris? Hey Spanners, it's it's going great. You know, it's been great to uh, get the get the amp up for the season. You know, there's a bit more motorsport on on the TV. Just wetting that appetite for the new season. Yeah, I know my appetite is wetted, and uh, we had a bit of criticism on the feedback. Wow, why do you keep bringing up Abu Dhabi? Why do you keep uh, talking about the end of last season? 2021's done, but the news cycle just keeps finding new things yeah. to bring up and to stir up. So we have been kind of dragged into that. But I think I'm I'm nearly ready to move on. It would be better if there was some kind of definitive report out. But yeah, the, the excitement for the new season is, is overtaking Abu Dhabi for me slightly. Absolutely. I mean, there's just so much to to do still in between now and, and the first race. We've still got a whole other test to come where we're going to see completely different looking cars by the sound of it. And we'll wildly speculate on that. We're also joined by up-and-coming TikTok sensation, Antonia Rankin. Hello, Antonia. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, and I, I realised in our chat pre-show, I never stopped to check and to vet 
which teams and drivers you support. So this could be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, no, I am um, having grown up with F1. I've seen so many different drivers come and go. So I'm less of a less of a team's girl and more of a driver's girl. Okay. So I really love Sebastian Vettel. I really root for him. He's got a bit of history behind him. Grew up having a bit of a crush. Um, <laughs> also really like Daniel Ricciardo. And I think signs, especially, I don't think enough people talk about him. I find on my TikTok, I keep having to remind people how great signs is. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, science has been a big stumbling block in my my recent kind of commentary and and punditry of Formula One because I've I've sort of been arguing with Matt for the longest time that science is is likely heading towards kind of journeyman status within F one and then his twenty twenty one performance just made a fool of me basically. Yeah, no, he's proven himself to be a really consistent driver. I think enough people aren't talking about him because I think he's overshadowed by a lot of the other drivers who are up there in the podiums every week. And whilst he hasn't had his first win yet, I think it's only a matter of time for sure. Well, it might only be a matter of time, guys, because I've been I've been a busy bee trying to chat with a lot of the Derricks in the F1 paddock. So when Joe Saywood comes on here and says, oh, uh, I've got a source that's giving me X information. He's he's talking about Jos Capito, uh, Zach Brown, Toto Wolf. When I say I've got a source, I'm talking about, you know, uh, Derek in acrylics and, uh, you know, the guy who puts the, the numbers on the car pre-race. But I have been lucky enough to, to speak to, to a few guys in and around Formula One. And after the testing, it was really interesting speaking to a McLaren guy. He says, oh, I think, I think looking at it, and this is all caveated by everyone knows new things can come out in, in Bahrain and, and invalidate it. He said, oh, I think we're third. I think we're third at the moment. I was like, oh, right, okay, so confident of beating Ferrari. He was like, no, 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 I think, think Ferrari a second. So that surprised me a bit. I thought, well, wait, hang on a minute, who are you putting up top? I, I assume you're saying Mercedes up front. So like, yeah, we think Mercedes was running with like seven tanks worth of petrol in that, in that first test, uh, but not fancying Red Bull. So I scrambled over to, uh, you know, the you know, basically catering in Red Bull to, to my contact in Red Bull to try and confirm it. And he said, well, actually, we don't don't think McLaren are our third. Uh, we think they're probably fourth. But he had the order from the first test as Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, then McLaren. So in that in that scenario, Antonio, your, your man signs there could be looking to scrap in and around for a title and show us what you can do. Yeah, no, I honestly wouldn't be surprised. I think looking at testing, it's all about who's had the longest time. And Ferrari have had wind tunnel after wind tunnel ahead of all of the other teams. So I think. Why is that? Well, it's, it's due to a number of factors. I think a, lo- a lot of the time it's due to the resources available. With all of the different regulation changes, there's been a lot of shift around resources, about budget, especially, and limitations regarding that. So I think Ferrari have had a lot more time to test the car in wind tunnels, et cetera, which does put them ahead of the field because time is going to be everything here. Ooh, Chris, is there something where uh, teams got wind tunnel time based on their championship position? Absolutely. So the top guys in the Constructors' Championship with the least amount of wind tunnel time now compared to those finishing ninth and 10th in the standings who get the most time. So it's another one of those, you know, leveling out the playing field measures. Mm, so so Red Bull really had the best of all worlds because they won the World Drivers' Championship, which is all anyone cares about, plus by finishing second in the Constructors. Ah, oh, really? Well, Are we going to have this argument again? Well, no, because they still have less wind tunnel time than... Eight of the other teams. That's true. But surely they'll be seeing Mercedes as the main... The, see, this is the thing. I think for, if 
if, if everyone's right, then Ferrari are sort of coming out of nowhere based on, I know we get no information. It wasn't even a televised test, but based on no information, what order do we think the teams are in? Antonia? Oh, I think that's so difficult to say because... No, speculate wildly. <laughs> I think aside from making making guesses on testing, because we know that's going to change, I we have to bear in mind that budget is allocated based on constructors' championship, not on drivers' championship. So whilst there are budget caps, teams like Mercedes are going to have more budget than Red Bull. So I would put them ahead of Red Bull in that sense. And also based on Ferrari's track record, I would also say that they are going to be pretty far ahead. So yeah, I'm I'm not surprised to hear that Ferrari are looking pretty optimistic to be top top three, top two. And and we have to remember that before the allegedly they definitely used too much fuel and then had a secret punishment for two years. Before that, we forget they were the this the, the second best team in Formula One for the two seasons before that. And they were well ahead of Red Bull. They were pushing Mercedes probably until the back end of the second half and they probably got a little bit outdeveloped, Chris. But if we restore if we restore the natural order and assume that the alleged definite secret punishment is over now, uh, then you know we could really be looking at Ferrari being back in the mix. Shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Well, absolutely. I mean, they've made so many changes to the engine since you know that controversy, and a brand new set of aerodynamic regulations was the perfect opportunity for them to try and jump up a few places in the championship again. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them fighting for race wins this year. I would anticipate that it will be McLaren uh, alongside them making steps forward with Red Bull slipping back. As I was saying for quite a lot towards the end of last year, Red Bull seemed to prioritize 2021 a little bit too much for them to get the jump on this year's regulations compared to other teams. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Aston Martin right up there competing for podiums. So, Antonio, you mentioned you're a a Danny Rick fan. I maintain that he is probably secretly slightly evil in in the background but why why Danny Rick over say Lando Norris at, at McLaren I think Danny obviously he's got the experience behind him at Red Bull he had a he didn't quite realize his potential at Red Bull and I think as racing fans we can all agree it is a bit of a tragedy that he probably may never get a world championship at this point but Written I think that I'm aware that's a very controversial opinion <laughs> But I think the step to Renault was a really unfortunate career mistake for him. And that did set him back. So putting him back in the McLaren, I think it's, I think everyone just wants to see him do well. And he's, because he's so likable, he's a great driver. He's nice off track as well. You just want to see him do well. Mm, Yeah. If you look back to that Renault deal, I mean, we can't forget, Chris, that that was, I know we get tangenting a little bit here. That was a 40 million euro contract was it for that i i can't remember the numbers but it was an expensive deal yeah and when you when you think that uh lewis hamilton is purportedly on 50 million something something space credits whatever it is uh, and max verstappen has joined him because max verstappen has now signed a a new deal to it can't be a coincidence that it's exactly matched lewis hamilton's money i think they're making a big statement there Verstappen's the champion. He's a legitimate champion. Stop your whinging. We're paying him the same as Lewis Hamilton. Big statement. Um, yeah, no wonder they got so many new sponsors on board, like the Oracle deal, which is <laughs> yeah. 50 million a year as well. I mean, that's Max's salary sorted by one title sponsor. 
they have brought in so much money with new sponsors for this year. I don't think Red Bull themselves are actually putting that much money in the project. Yeah, poor old Red Bull. They were scraping around for dollars, weren't they? Uh, They are a massively rich company. So for them, if they can find an area to spend money outside of the budget cap, I think driver salaries aren't in the budget cap, are they? No. Okay, so for them, they can make that big statement. It's chump change for them. Uh, And uh, the PR for them around Max Verstappen, I think for them, is is almost as important as the performance. So for them, throwing 50 million at Verstappen, the champion, is, uh, yeah, it's it's a good move by them. It's a bold, strong statement. Absolutely. I mean, the marketing is the biggest asset that any of these teams have, especially for a company like Red Bull, which is in Formula One to sell energy drinks and and nothing more Mm, yeah well see how that works out let's move on to a little bit of listener feedback we've got a a mailbag thing i'm getting better guys at separating the the listener feedback in the mailbox so spanners at mistapex.net and uh toma toma has been helping me he has been providing our email they are the official uh, email sponsor Kovax in uh, in the Netherlands and you can find a link to their email services in the show notes below but they 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 helped me they separated it all out so when you send a question in it goes into a separate folder so that means we can do better listener feedback <laughs> So our first email is from Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, Great work last year. Thanks to the entire team and the weekly panellists covering the 2021 season. Uh, Question for you all as the new season approaches. I'm a pretty new fan, having started watching Formula One about two years ago during the height of the pandemic, uh, a drive to survive convert, he's saying. So I'd like to know if the team, that's us, could rank their anticipation of the three returning tracks, Suzuka, Montreal and Singapore so that new fans of the sport will know what to expect on these this race weekends thanks for all the hard work and great content especially spanners says Dan so when I say I'm the best one that's what I'm talking about Dan agrees okay so interesting that these three you know classic tracks to a lot of people have been watching F1 for a substantial amount of time and don't know these tracks I mean uh, Antonio when did you start watching Formula One? Oh gosh, um, it was literally forever. So I guess the f- I was born in 2003. Oh my God. So um, I expect the first season I can properly remember would probably be like 2009, oh, 2010. Okay. okay, okay. So yeah, that's so, so Button's your your champ as you came into Formula oh, One. for sure, yeah. Him, mm. at, him at Braun, yeah. So we, we had an interesting conversation earlier, didn't we, Chris, where you said you, you actually, you I guess you both don't know a Formula One without Lewis Hamilton. Uh, but, uh, no, me yeah. personally, no. But that that passes because I'm something something years old, and like I remember being surprised, you know, when there's people who go, "Well, I don't, I don't know a Formula One without Kimi Raikkonen and 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 stuff." So that that all that stuff does does kind of pass. Um, but the, the tracks, especially, which one of those three are you looking forward to most, uh, Chris? Canada for sure, Montreal, Montreal circuit. In terms of just creating an exciting race, it's the safest option. It is just a wonderful circuit that offers so many great challenges. It's a semi, semi-permanent semi course, so it's a bit of street track, bit of permanent course. There's lots of technical chicanes in there, lots of fast straights as well, where we see some really great wheel-to-wheel action. It tends to be very, very hot there as well, 
So we tend to get a lot of tire degradation that really mixes up the strategy. Well, hot or raining. It, honestly, yeah, it's one of the two. It's it's either baking hot or it is pouring down with rain, uh, a la 2011. And, you know, probably one of the most watched moments in Grand Prix history, uh, that race in 2011. So it's just it, just nine times out of ten. It's a great race. And you, wow, you say nine times. I'm going to challenge that, Chris. I don't want to pick a fight. I Go used on. to love this track, and I used to talk about it as one of my favourite tracks on the F1 calendar. Uh, but recently, I've started to think of it more as a kind of mini Monza, and that nothing really happens unless you get rain or a safety car. And I think it's probably had more misses than hits in the last ten years. Antonio, are you a fan? Yeah, I would say of the of those three, I would probably be leaning to, more towards Suzuka being the most interesting. I think historically, obviously, it's been it's been such a key track and we've had so many great battles there. We've had Senna Prost, we've had Rosberg Hamilton battling it out. Of course, we've got the infamous Dunlop curve that had to be like redrained. Wait, wait a minute, you're going to have to help me with my track recognition. Which one's Dunlop? Dunlop? The Dunlop curve at Suzuka. Yeah, which one? Which one's Dunlop? Go through the track. So underneath the bridge? Oh, okay. So you've got the crossover. It's the curve where Jules Bianchi had his horrific accident. So where there was all the all the rainwater had gathered there. I'm not sure where on the track it is, actually. Chris will help us out because he's, he's, he does commentary. <laughs> after, after the S's. Oh, OK. After there the S's. Oh, <laughs> oh, I see. It's that uphill uh, left-hander. Yeah, before the Degnas. Oh, yeah. No, that is, that's horrible because it's, um, it's tempting the drivers, I think, to, to be flat out. Uh, really, you do, I think, in most formulas, you will need a, a, a lift into there just to set yourself up for the corner. Yeah, no, the thing is with Suzuka is it's a very high speed track. I think the average, the top speed is about 203 miles an hour, but it's also quite a high downforce track and it's quite technical in places. And I think going into the new season where we're going to have more wheel to wheel racing, it's going to be really dependent on which teams have got their downforce down to a T, got their aero down to a T. Now, this is an interesting thing. If if the cars can follow, like everybody is saying, this could have significant impacts on tactics and racing Chris if you've got a track like Suzuka where in uh, less aero dependent cars you're able to to follow and go side by side through corners actually you, you could see a battle up front cars losing seconds to the pack chasing them if they get caught up in these battles certainly I know people don't like us talking about sim racing but you've seen on the map championships if you get into a battle and defend through half the lap you know on these non-aero dependent cars suddenly you're just absolutely draining time. Absolutely. If there was a circuit that you were going to pick that was going to be a big beneficiary of these new regulations, it would be Suzuka because it's just been an issue with the wake on these cars in the past Mm. few years because it's such a fast track in terms of the cornering. You know, we were talking about Canada being fast because of the straights. Suzuka just has fast corners. It's full of them. And it makes for a great spectacle. And what we really love about Suzuka as well is the proper old school nature of it. You've got the track, the white line, grass and gravel, and then mm. a, a barrier. And for me, that's how you know it, it should be in, in most places. No big tarmac runoff areas, or at least for a little bit anyway. And yeah. So it, it, it makes things just a little bit more spectacular. Keith H in our live chat hello live chat room by the way if you want to join our live chat that's from our patreon slack group uh, do feel free to go and check us out at patreon.com forward slash missed apex uh, keith h says the s's 
with ground effect has the potential to be incredible because of course like previously you just have to kind of back off and i think that was the example i used actually was turn one at suzuka which is that flying right hander which if there's if there's ground effect and there's no wake maybe cars can actually stay pinned to the car ahead into the s's okay so it's not no wake oh come on no there is still some way you can't you can't eliminate wake in its entirety unless you just ban all wings (laughs) not with that attitude you can't (laughs) (laughs) well no this is true but if you want a formula ford then go to brands hatch so okay okay and then the last of those three tracks that dan was asking about is singapore now uh, we had a little chat offline about this and i think antonio and i are going to fall out what's your opinion on singapore antonio i quite like it wrong okay go on then tell us why you're wrong hear me out it is as downforce heavy as downforce gets as a track those it's so technical. There's these 90 degree turns. It's a crazy difficult circuit. It's a nice little hybrid. You've got a bit of the kind of traditional track elements, a bit of the street race elements. I think with the new design of the front wing and with the difference between, I think it's uh, Red Bull and McLaren as opposed to the rest of the pack with having their pull rod suspension that will get in the way of the aero, I think wait, it wait. will really separate the teams. Wait, wait, just help me out with that because when Kyle was talking about the suspension last week I completely passed me by so hang on the teams with that are going for the pull rod I think are McLaren and Red Bull yeah yeah okay and and that's an advantage or a disadvantage are you saying we're not sure yet but the issue is where the suspension is in the car is exactly where the airflow is on the front wing so it will really interfere with Uh. the airflow through down in the new um, floor channels of the car So on a track like Singapore, we're really going to see a marked difference between pull rod and push rod cars because there'll be a complete difference in the airflow. I completely understood all of that. No more questions. Chris? The Singapore Grand Prix is the closest thing Formula One gets to an endurance race. More often than not, we run to close to the two hour time limit. And when it comes to the physical training of the drivers, this is the one that they are training for because it is the longest race. It is by far the most physical, not so much in terms of the G-force because the corners are actually quite slow. It's more about the braking. They obviously still pull heavy Gs under braking, but it is the heat and the humidity that kills the drivers in this race mm. and and the cars as well. They go through a lot during the course of the Singapore Grand Prix. And these new cars with the less downforce and the lower speed, will probably be snaking around a lot more. And I think in street courses in general, we are going to see a lot more sliding from the cars in this year, which will make Monaco, for example, a lot more interesting. Oh, my God. Right. I thought I was going to have... Shut up, man. You're just triggering me. Monaco's not going to be interesting. I'm not even... I'm not even both sidesing that. I'm not doing it. Oh, let's give equal time to someone who thinks rubbing your foot can cure a brain disease. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not entertaining Monaco being slightly better because of these. Right, here's why you're wrong about Singapore. That's more important. Singapore is the track that is going to benefit the least, isn't it, out of a lack of aero wake because it's, it's stop and start anyway. It's point and squirt. It suffers from what all city street circuits suffer from, which is going into a blind 90-degree turn, uh, the car in front having a long advantage to get away on the power much earlier, pulls away, and then they just stay in in the train. The only slightly interesting aspects of Singapore track-wise is probably the final sweeping left-hander and then this sort of stadium chicane left-right. 
I don't, I don't see the pe- appeal. Antonio's given me uh, daggers, <laughs> but I, I just don't see the appeal. It's never been a race that is lit up. It's always a boring one stop because teams can park it and they can say, right, we our, our tires won't wear out if we go slow, and the cars behind us can't overtake if we go slow because it's Singapore. And so what you end up with is just these traffic jams for two hours. I don't see the appeal. Well, uh, oh, hang on, Antonio, first thing, Chris. See, I I would be inclined to agree. I completely see where you're coming from. Yeah. But with the new regs, the <laughs> and sorry to keep bringing them up. No, but that's with fine. the new regs, the ways that the car is going to be able to get round these ridiculous ninety degree corners is going to be completely different okay. because they don't have the Y two fifty vortex anymore on the front wings, which is basically what pulls the front wing to the ground. So in right. the old regulations, the front wing at two hundred miles an hour exerted like two hundred and seventy kilos onto the track of weight. Whereas now it's going to be way less because there's not this vortex of air pinning it to the ground. So around these 90 degree turns, it's going to be ridiculously different, I think, compared to what we've seen in previous years. I think it could be really interesting. Just when I think that you and I could be friends, you hit me with full rod (laughs) suspension and Y250K vortexes. My goodness, if I didn't suffer enough from being the live producer for the upcoming segment in a moment with the uh, summers and trumpets, not only did I have to like sit and do the pre-edit before Steve did that, I'm going to have to sit and listen to it again as I play it out. I've suffered enough. And there's Antonia hitting me with even more tech. All right, Chris. So some people in the chat room have brought up the fact that two hours isn't much of an endurance race when you compare it to... <laughs> Le Mans and Nürburgring, yeah, but that's of course, stupid. let's not. Well, let's not forget the drivers are doing that full race. The drivers at Le Mans and Nürburgring, they're sharing that car with two or three other drivers. And actually, when you look at it, the time spent in the car, you know, in one go, is roughly similar. No. Okay. Okay. Well, some of the points I understood. So, if you're telling me these new regulations are going to make actually Singapore good, then I don't know. I. I street circuits in general in formula one have always suffered because not only do you have the normal say two seconds where the tires start to not have enough downforce to to be effective because they're losing your y2k bug downforce thing that you were talking about Uh, but on a street circuit it's exacerbated (laughs) that's a long word exacerbated by the walls so for example at baku uh, uh, don't they say that it's actually eight seconds that you're feeling that effect and it's the same at singapore as well chris and i i just i can't see i i love the optimism but i can't see singapore suddenly being a free-flowing overtaking strategic masterclass no you're not suddenly going to make it like silverstone for example where we see fantastic racing (laughs) but it should open up more opportunities it should make it more likely that say doing an extra stop and being able to work your way back through the pack is a little bit more feasible, like what we saw in the early days of the high-degradation Pirelli tyres back into 2011, 2012. I would say the bigger problem that Singapore has, and there's not really a lot they can do about it, is just the pit-stop lost time is staggering. It's like the biggest one of the entire year, like 27, 28 seconds or something like that. Uh, okay, and obviously that's not going to change no. this year. So that will be that will be the same. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's your, the, your three tracks... The, the perhaps some of the, the newer fans who've been brought in on this wave of drive to survive uh, hype 
uh, and, and and welcome, by the way. We're not gatekeeping if you, that's the way you've come into Formula One. You know, I, I'm only into Formula One because my dad gave me the choice to sit down of a weekend of watching Formula One, Rugby League or MotoGP, where the bikes lean over and they should fall down, but they don't. So Formula One was the best choice of that. Um, but it's it's interesting that the new crop of F1 fans that are here, are here don't know those classic tracks. What I would say is it is going to be a treat for you guys to see cars around Montreal and around Suzuka. And I, Singapore. I, no, I'm admitting. I'm omitting Singapore. <laughs> Okay, finally, before we go to tech, I think just building on that conversation there, do you think that there are any standout tracks looking at the philosophies that we might have seen at testing? And of course, we're in wild speculation here. Do we think we're going to see anything different from previous years of cars suiting certain tracks? So for for example, Antonia, when we look at Barcelona final sector, we, we always tend to go, ah, well, the team that runs here is going to do well at at Monaco, and that is invariably Red Bull with their mechanical grip. You know, are we going to see any kind of changes, or what kind of trends can can we look at this season? Do you think? I think it's difficult because obviously in previous years before the new regs, we could just say, "Oh, well, historically Mercedes have done well at this track, so we can expect them to do well in you know going forwards." But I think cars cars that suits um, the kind of lower downforce tracks like Ferrari at Monza. I'm sure we can probably expect similar things because the teams will want to play to their pre-existing strengths because it's not just obviously the drivers that have to accommodate these new changes. It's also the teams as a whole and the drivers have to learn a new style of driving to fit the car. It's like, you know, Ricardo, he had to get used to being at being at the McLaren and getting used to that car and he has to do the same thing for the new regulations. So uh, I think yeah. it's difficult to say that it will be it'll be similar to previous years because there's going to be such a huge shake-up. But yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to establish some trends. And uh, that particular trend, Chris, that I was talking about with Red Bull being, say, strong in mechanical grip and in the the last few seasons where they've not been strong in other areas, they've done well at Monaco or places where it's not been so power-dependent. But before that, you know, they were the kings of aero and they're still the kings of aero. They've just for ages had to overcome... I guess, engine deficits. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally in 2021, they had the power unit to compete with the Mercedes and the car to to go with it. But it's different compared to, say, the last set of regulation changes we had in 2017 because what they did was just put an F1 car on steroids and make the wings even bigger than what they were. This is an entirely new way of creating downforce that, is going to throw teams' philosophies out the window. I mean, looking at Red Bull, for example, they had a high-rake car in the last set of regulations, swore by it and carried it through for a very long, long time. Whereas this year, in the new set of regulations, all the cars pretty much have to be a much lower rake. And so all the aero work is just out the window. Uh, Antonio, do you have uh, an opinion on the porpoising? Uh, because, you know, that's going to throw a lot of teams off. Um, and, and Chris was talking about the rake and the ride height will probably be more, much more of an issue this season than previous seasons. I'm not quite familiar with that, actually. I um, Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, no, that's fine. In, in, the, in the first tests, they were obviously all bouncing up and down. And uh, it was just that compromise between if they do a higher ride height, 
they somehow get rid of this effect of basically the ground effect seems sort of switching on and off was how Catman described it. So it would suck the car down and then it would ping back up. And having the ride height low gives you the best performance, but you're shaking the the driver inside in like a little weeble wobble, Chris. So what this could create is big gaps between teams. If a couple of teams are able to work this out quickly while still maintaining high performance, you know, we we, we say, well, just raise the ride height. One yeah. thing you yeah. lose Easy. yourself performance. Simple, isn't it? Easy, isn't you need it? A, you need a solution that doesn't cost you performance. And the first team to figure that out will probably steal a march on the rest of the grid for a few races. And it's not like it's, you know, it's a complicated issue. We can sit here and say we know what the solutions are. but Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> you know, oh, in okay. theory, how do you do it for your specific car? Okay. Uh, we, RJ in our live chat just said, come on, Spanners, it's not hype. Netflix is bringing in new fans and it's more coverage than you or Joe or anyone else could get. I'm not being disparaging of it. Honestly, it has been wonderful uh, bringing in especially a large American audience as well as as people from around the world. I think it's fantastic. I wasn't disparaging people who've come to Formula One from Drive to Survive, but I'm just saying it's a big lump of new people all in one go. So if we can be of any help, like Dan on his email, feel free to ask us about the before times. My favourite thing to do is explain Formula One to new people because Mm. Formula One is something I am so incredibly passionate about. And when new people come to me asking questions, you know, how does this work? It means they are interested in my passion as well. I'm very happy to share that. And we can't be scared of new mediums uh, like Vine, uh, MySpace. We can't be afraid to try these things. And of course, Antonia is uh, leading the way and uh, is doing incredibly well as an F1 TikToker. And uh, I I mean, you can can feel in my inflection that I'm, I'm not necessarily the target audience for your TikToks, but they are really good fun and you are uh, getting quite a following as well. Yeah, I think what I really like about TikTok is it's just so accessible to my age group. And I think obviously there's quite a big stereotype with Drive to Survive because it is, you do have to take it with a pinch of salt. It is a bit sensationalized. So I think there is, yeah, there's it's, quite it's... a lot of hostility from the existing community towards drive to survive fans because they feel as though they don't necessarily always know what they're talking about yeah well so that's one of my... gatekeeping and that's wrong exactly and one of one of my favorite things to do as as chris was saying is just if you're passionate about something talk about it and tell people about it and that's why i love my tiktok account because i get this huge audience who i can just talk to and get everyone's opinions and it's really open especially to people my age who are just getting into the sport yeah. and it's really nice just sharing ideas and earlier you said to me oh when i do my lives uh, and then you started saying a bunch of stuff and i nodded i don't know what a live <laughs> is so what what are those so on TikTok, every now and again, I'll do a live stream, basically. So right. you go live on TikTok and it's it's very similar to kind of what we're doing here, where you've got a live chat going on, people are talking to you, you kind of respond to their questions. So normally I'll like post a topic. So through livery reveals, I was saying, oh, like, what does everyone think of Aston Martin? And then we'd all have a big talk about it. And it means you can respond in real time to people and what they're all saying, which I really love. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you go in our show notes below, we will link to antonia's tiktok thank you very much for joining us on missed apex podcast of course chris you can follow chris when he does his stuff online where's your tiktok chris i have started uploading to tiktok okay i have been making commentator cam oh videos i saw from yes. our missed apex iRacing racing f3 cup championship it was quite good 
I like that. And you're very good um, on the commentary team. We should link in the show notes as well to the last round of our F3 Cup, which was very exciting. And I did moderately okay. So uh, I'm happy to share because I got two eighth places out of a 40 car grid. I was very happy with that. Uh, and I'll be commentating on uh, Brad's uh, Nürburgring 12 Hours, brought to you by M4M and Sim Broadcast. Absolutely. More details of that to follow a bit later in the show. Follow Chris at Chris on Racing. But guys, we are now heading towards the tech segment of the show. If Antonia hadn't already put you off talking about Y2K vortices and pull rod and push rod, we have coming up a chat between Matt, two rumpets, uh, and... I would say the best tech man in Formula One, Matthew Summerfield, Summers F1, who sat down for half an hour with us, which we are incredibly grateful for because it's a very, very busy time of the season for him um, as the deputy tech editor of motorsport.com. And then after this segment, they sat down for a further 45 minutes, which we will release on our patron only stream as well. So here you go, guys. Here's the tech. That's right, it's time for tech, and once again, we're fortunate enough to be joined by the hardest working man in tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, aka Summers F1, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, who's deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem. It is a very busy period in the, the season for me, though, so as you can appreciate, but uh, let's get on into it. Yeah, yeah. I imagine you must be at the point where every object looks like it has flow fields attached to it whenever you walk around. Pretty much, to be honest, yeah. Okay, well, uh, the thing that has struck me most, and I think it's probably struck most of our listeners and viewers as well, is the side pods. They are so very, very different this year, and I have helpfully categorized them into four different types. The tortellini, or the Ferrari type, the pancake, or the Aston type type the shrinking or the mercedes type and the uh i guess you would call them salad or ramped type that's a very very in foodie joke and i apologize for it yeah i mean to be honest the side pods are one of the things that we've actually seen the most design diversity in and it's something that we didn't really think about going into this regulation set i mean we've got 10 very different designs obviously there's some crossover in the way in which some of them look and the way some of them will obviously perform but it is a massive amount of diversity up and down the field and i think that's really good to see at the start of a regulation set when we really did think that it was more going to be like a a spec series in in many ways so good to good to see from the teams yeah there was an exceptional amount of moaning uh from a lot of the tech people when they looked at how prescriptive these regs appeared, uh, especially with this switch to CAD um but you've seen them on track now you've seen at least some preliminary times and runnings. What are we thinking have have we have we found is there a particular type of side pod that looks like it's most on the right track and i grant you a lot of this may change when we see the completely different cars in bahrain but based on what you've seen now is any design looking more successful than any other design well i think to answer that question we have to understand what they're trying to do with the side pods and primarily you have to think about the cooling aspects so the internal components that live within the side pods your radiators uh, intercoolers Uh, electronics that sort of thing so obviously those have to be catered for when you're designing the side pods on top of that obviously there's a huge amount to do with aerodynamics and certainly 
this year, the reason that we're seeing very much a diverse group of side pod designs is that teams are trying to manipulate the side pods themselves to overcome some of the issues of the regulations. So in previous regulations, we've had uh, flow conditioners, deflectors, fins, winglets, all these sort of things in and around the side pods leading edge in order to help divert airflow around the side pod for what we would call or categorise outwash. Now, without those tools at their disposal, the teams have had to get a bit more inventive with the shape and geometry of the side pods to try to get some of that effect back. So what we're seeing in many respects is the teams trying to interpret how to use the side pods to push airflow out sideways. And again, this is something that the regulations kind of didn't really want it to to crop up but the teams have to try to get that performance back and you know they they don't they're not going to forget the things that they know effectively so the side pods are more of an iterational design in order to 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 get those uh those designs working in a way or a fashion in which they've already had in the past okay now i i know for a fact because you slated me for stealing it from you last week that you were particularly keen on the Williams side pod design. And so immediately we know the commentator's curse will apply. But what is it about it? I mean, aside from the fact that like they just flow air through the top of it instead of using it to cool at least half the time, because they have a panel that can close it. What is it about the Williams design in particular that you find intriguing? And what do you think they are attempting to do that is is sort of different from any other team? Because no other team has come up with anything that looks quite like that. Yeah, I mean, you'd put Williams in the similar sort of category as maybe McLaren and Mercedes, which when they all share a power unit, you can see that commonality and and why they've gone down that design direction. But with with Williams, they've kind of got this extremely short, narrow ramp uh, to the frontal region of the side pod in order to try and downwash the airflow into the Coke bottle region behind uh, the, the rear end of the car. In order to do that, they've had to move to a more centerline cooling situation where they've got um, radiators and intercoolers spread out around the power, the power unit itself in sort of a saddle configuration, much like we've seen from Red Bull in the past. But it is so intriguing that the design that they've gone for, not only have they been very aggressive in the, the size of the pods, but obviously, as you mentioned, they've got this um, sort of inlet outlet scenario to try to help with the aerodynamic side of things. Now, on top of that, you have to remember that this year we're dealing with a different positioning for the side impact structures. Uh, They've been altered in where they can be positioned, and that's obviously given the teams a bit of a headache in terms of redesigning the side pods. And so for Williams to have pulled this off, they've actually had to be quite or got quite an interesting design. So as you mentioned, they can actually close this throughput uh, outlet off and they can basically use it as a as a full cooling outlet so it's it's really interesting that they've they've decided that you know we're going to give ourselves a bit of leeway because at certain tracks when they potentially want a little bit more cooling they can take away some of the aerodynamic performance that they're gaining from this this inlet outlet scenario uh, and go for a little bit more cooling as well Okay, I want to bring up the centerline cooling a little bit because we've had an offline conversation and it appears to me that the way they have set it up, they now have a very symmetrical car. And and you had mentioned that might be an advantage, not just um, on track, but off track with simulation and testing as well. 
Yeah, we've talked about this in the past on the podcast in terms of the way in which teams use CFD initially to to understand how to you know manipulate airflow around the car, and predominantly you would probably do a half half car to start with in order to do those things but then you have to factor in if you do have asymmetric cooling inside the car itself you have to make do with those factors whilst you're you, you know you're doing your, your cfd simulations obviously then changes when you go into wind tunnel but it is a, a factor that you have to consider um and i think williams moving into this direction is really interesting in that respect so they would not have to do separate um runs for the other side of their cooling in order to see how it works so therefore they might have more they might be able to do more runs with the same amount of computer resources if i'm understanding you correctly yeah or they they will not have to worry about doing calculations that make sense of those differences from one side of the car to the other okay right so so they won't have to apply like an offset or a, a fudge factor let's call it and which would never be as accurate as doing another whole run Correct, yeah. Okay. Well, another thing that, that, that I'm interested in your take on is uh, what I like to call Formula SUV because a lot of the teams showed up and uh, were nowhere close to the minimum weight, or at least in Formula One terms, were nowhere close to the minimum weight. Why is that? How, how did this happen? And um, I, I know we've seen sort of there's a, there's a push from some team to like, let's just make everything heavier. Do you think that's going to succeed or do you even think it should succeed? I mean, they seem like they're pretty heavy already, if you ask me. Yeah, they are pretty heavy, these cars, uh, which is a problem in many respects. But we have to remember that there's been changes to some of the safety structures in the car. Um, we also have to remember that we've got 23 races and a cost cap to deal with. So when you're thinking about building parts and having them last for more races, you inevitably have to add bulk in order that they can achieve those targets. And so uh, there are teams out there that are probably double digits over the weight at the moment. There is talk that teams are trying to get the FIA to to put some movement in place in order to reduce, or sorry, increase the minimum weight. And whilst we've got teams like Alfa Romeo who appear to have made the weight, you have to ask the question, if they can do it, why should anybody else get a benefit from having the rules changed this late into the, the, the cycle? Um, I, I do think that possibly could be a, a smidgen of change before the season starts in this respect just to try and help the teams out um, but it, it wouldn't be the route that I personally would want to take in this scenario okay so I'm, I'm going to ask which team is worst off right now do we know who the heaviest team is we don't know exactly who the heaviest team is. Obviously, there's a huge amount of speculation out there with Red Bull probably being one of the ones that is most you know, vocal in terms of having the regulation altered, which then would obviously suggest that they're the ones perhaps struggling the most to get down to the weight limit. Now, one thing that I will mention here that I think, you know, people should remember is the reason why teams want to get down to the weight limit is that it then enables them to use ballast around the car without any penalty for doing so and so whilst they are struggling at the moment that weight will come down as the teams you know make improvements to the car uh, throughout the course of the season so they won't you know they won't stay at the weight that they're currently sat at all the way throughout the season we will see them make gains in that respect but it does have a performance offset in terms of what they're available 
to do with the the ballast for you know moving moving the the weight around the car. Right. So I have a, a bit of a regulatory question. Uh, this is a technical regulation, the the minimum weight, or is it a sporting regulation? Because changing it is different. I think if it's a technical reg regulation, they can just issue a directive if they choose to. But if it's a sporting regulation, the teams have to agree. Yes, it's a technical regulation. Okay, because I mass, was thinking mass of the car is in the technical regulations. Yeah, no, I was thinking it would be an interesting thing for the teams that are close because if they agree to increase the minimum weight, then essentially they get extra ballast, which they might view as being more favorable, uh, getting more of an advantage for themselves. They would have to decide that. But that tells us, well, we have some good news, I think, on the weight front, which is after, what is it, seven years? The Renault PU is finally down to the actual minimum weight and my only question to you about that is seven how did it take seven years for them to get the engine down to the proper weight um i don't think there's really it's it's not a massive difference as to where they've been overweight in the past anyway uh, as as you know it's only a minimum weight if you're only a few kilos over then it, it might not be too detrimental in terms of performance but then as we know weight does equal performance in terms of lap time. So, you know, as you say, seven years is a very long time to be off that target weight. And um, it's interesting that they're only just reaching it right now. But I will add and caveat that with the fact that Alpine haven't really had a power unit upgrade for the last two seasons, you know, so that will have a bearing on it in many, many ways. Okay. Five years. How did it take five years? I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Um, I do want to run one thing by you. Um, I, I'd been uh, talking with Kyle offline, and he had suggested that production deadlines might be behind some of the weight we're seeing, as in the amount of time to produce something, to have it be reliable for testing, meant that perhaps it was produced at a heavier weight to ensure it didn't break. And so are we looking at a situation where when we go back to Bahrain, we might see some some a lot of the cars are a lot closer to the minimum weight than they were in the first test? Yes, essentially. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the weights that we're seeing right now are based on an early spec of the car. And there are other factors involved in terms of development. So you will see that weight come down. It just means that those that are at the very high end at the moment might struggle to meet the weight, whereas those that are at the low end have obviously much less work to do in the meantime. Okay. Um, I, now, I know that there's some suspension stuff that you want to talk about that's not just who's push rod and who's pull rod. But before we get there, you know I'm going to ask about the tires because we've seen some comments from the drivers, some mildly positive comments. The tires are doing better. Um, and my first question is, what have they done with the real drivers who are always supposed to do nothing but complain about the tires? But secondly, not everyone agrees. In particular, I think uh, Lance Stroll has said that he did not find the tires to be particularly any better. And I'm wondering, is, is he telling us more about his driving style or about his specific car and how it deals with the tires? Or, or, or do you think that Pirelli have really sort of hit their brief here and, and made tires that will work better and recover from uh, thermal from going over um from being overheated better than the previous generation did 
Well, I think that in many respects they won't overheat as much anyway. That that's the the brief that you know Pirelli have got is that these tires need to be able to give the driver performance for a much much longer period of time. So, in many respects, as you mentioned, I think what we're hearing from Lance is probably indicative of how he drives and this car behaves and bearing in mind that the, these cars do behave very differently to their predecessors in, in many ways in terms of how they produce their downforce and many other factors uh, regarding how they just perform on track. And so I, I would take Lance's stroll, Lance Stroll's comments with a pinch of salt in many respects and listen to the large majority of the drivers who've been pretty happy in which the way the tyres have performed. Obviously, they're going to moan as we get closer to the area where we're talking about performance. And so at the moment, they're relatively happy because they've got a baseline. But as they need to start to dial these cars in, which they really didn't do in Barcelona, it was more of a, you know, let's go out there, let's shake these cars down, let's get a lot of laps under our belt and understand how they operate. Once we start to see the power units turned up, and more downforce added to the cars. I think then we might start to see some real comments coming out from the drivers about the performance of these tyres. So anything we've had thus far, you know, just take it with a pinch of salt. Okay. The the one other uh, question that I really wanted to ask uh, is I did see that some people are saying there are bigger steps in between the compounds than there were the previous season. Is that going to have, do you think, a big impact on on how the season plays out in the in terms of the strategy the teams will employ? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that has to really be the case. When we're talking about tyres that potentially can do longer stints without drop-off in performance, you have to have a big step between one set of tyres to the other in terms of compounds in order to encourage them to be on that other set of tyre from a strategy point of view. Because what's the point in being on a fast on what is considered to be the softer tyre if it really doesn't yield any more performance? And so you would probably then just see teams try the hard and medium tyres. So, you know, from a Pirelli point of view in terms of adding performance to the tyres, it was a necessity in many ways to, to go down that particular route. Okay, so I know you're very keen to talk about the Red Bull front suspension. What has caught your interest there and uh, why should we pay, be paying careful attention to it? I think the, the reason, much like the side pods, is that, uh, that, that it's very different in terms of its makeup to everybody else. So obviously with the side pods, we've got these vast differences. Um, they're visually alarming when you first look at them. Uh, and that is the case for the Red Bull suspension. Obviously, they've gone with pull rod, as have McLaren at the front, which just to talk through the reasons why you might want to do that is that most of the weight from the inboard elements of the suspension are then mounted lower, which with these current rules, the nose is much lower Everything just aligns with having the pull red set up in, in, in many ways. On top of that, Red Bull have done what they've done in the past few years and gone for a multi-link suspension. So the wishbones aren't technically connected to one another at the outboard end, uh, as you would normally expect them to be. And in that respect, the upper wishbone is very much at a different angle from the top the front element, the front leg, to the rear element of the rear leg. And that, 
for me, is a massive difference compared to what we're seeing elsewhere, um, not only from an aerodynamic point of view, which in many ways I think uh, Red Bull are stepping off of that slightly. It's more to do with the mechanical aspect and things like anti-dive is what they're trying to work with here so that they can stabilise the platform of the car as they go into pitch, roll and heave, which is going to be a really massive topic this year because of the situation that we've seen unfold in the first test with you know, people being caught out with porpoising uh, because of the ground effect side of underfloor tunnels. Okay, so take a moment and explain how having the front and rear wishbones at different angles could help with stabilizing that aerodynamic platform. Um, because I, I like I can visualize what you're saying, but I'm struggling to understand how that would be better than how the other teams have done it. Like, where would the advantage for Red Bull come in uh, mechanically doing it that way? Okay, so when we're in pitch mode, i.e. forward and backwards, when we're right. thinking about acceleration and deceleration, the car wants to pitch backwards and forwards. And this is where you have the most problem in terms of keeping stability on the car when we're looking at things like porpoising and the big issue for this year for for teams is trying to find performance at low speed and you know trying to keep that platform as level as possible to to keep the the downforce in the right place now with the anti-dive solutions obviously that means that the car wouldn't pitch as far forward um when you're on when you're in braking and it would resist the forces as you're trying to accelerate away so I think it's more to do with, as I say, stabilising the platform of the car um, more than an aerodynamic purposes, which what we've seen in the past from suspension elements to try to, to get that performance aerodynamically rather than mechanically. And so that also bleeds into what they've done at the rear of the car because like McLaren, they've also flipped the script at the rear and gone for push rod. Uh, which means obviously everything is mounted higher out of the way of the diffuser and the underfloor tunnels. Now that is more of an aerodynamic characteristic, but again, you know, something that feeds into Red Bull having really thought about how to maximize the rule change to gain performance. Okay. Um, And you had also mentioned that a lot of the floor tricks that we have been talking about, aren't really tricks in the way that we were thinking about them. What did you mean by that? Like, like who has done something really interesting with the floor that deserves to be talked about and who have the commentators mistakenly focused on and gotten it all wrong with, in your opinion? Okay, so the first thing that I will mention is the McLaren floor edge because everybody's mentioned McLaren because they really didn't suffer as much with the poor poisoning issue during testing. And they've kind of latched onto the fact that they've got this very specific design on the edge of the floor uh, where they've got their edge wing. Now, the edge wing is uh, a solution that's allowed within the regulations. We even saw it on the show car from Formula One. But people seem to think that, oh, this this shouldn't be there. How have McLaren suddenly managed to get this onto the design of their car? Well, it looks different to the ones that we've seen from the show car, but you'd expect that. You know, you'd expect them to be pushing the way in which that they can interpret the regulations to gain performance. However, they're not the only ones that have run this. Alfa Romeo, who obviously I don't think anybody saw because they were running camo, uh, had a very similar solution. And then other teams are trying to hide performance, the likes of Mercedes, Red Bull, 
Ferrari even, you know, they don't really or haven't really shown their hand yet. And so to earmark McLaren as being, you know, really aggressive in this area and having made their gains because of it, we haven't really seen that the pattern emerge here yet. So I think everybody's jumped on this a bit too early uh, and we'll have to wait until we get to Bahrain to really see uh, what other teams are going to do in that area of the car. Okay, so now it's time for my favorite part of the show in testing, which is engage wild speculation mode. And the first thing I want to know from you, because I, you refuse to speculate, so you do make the game kind of hard. I have to do all the speculating, and then you just tell me why I'm wrong. But in a general sense, you've seen the tests, you've seen the cars on track, and you've seen uh, about a billion up-close pictures of them. Who has impressed you in this first test? And, and what is it that has impressed you about them? So, so if, you're, if you were doing a general rate my test, not who's fastest, like, like which teams have impressed you the most and what about them has intrigued you? Well, I think the, the, the two teams that stand out to me are Ferrari and McLaren. And that is because from a positional point of view from where they've been in the championship over the last couple of years, they seem to have made a step forward. However, you have to caveat that with the fact that I don't believe that Red Bull or Mercedes were showing their pace in any way, shape or form and clearly didn't have a lot of the design details on their car that you will see in Bahrain even in the test, um, they may still decide not to put all of their details on the car at the test. We might have to wait until uh, the, the you know the first race itself to see the final specification of those cars. But I do think they've closed the gap. That that's the interesting thing. I think that the gaps will be closer at the front this year, and perhaps we might get a few more opportunities for other drivers to get in the mix and, and win races. Okay, and of the teams that aren't those teams, uh, who should we maybe pay a little extra attention to? I mean, I know both Alpha and Haas didn't manage a great number of laps, but the la- you know, for example, did one of them look like, oh, well, that's an interesting way to do that. Maybe we should pay a little more attention to them, or is it pretty much status quo from there on down? Do you think? I think that the gaps that we've had inevitably had over the last few years might have shrunk a little because of the way that we've got the um the scale of CFD and wind tunnel and you know the operation that can be done behind the scenes to be able to close those gaps down in terms of who I'm really interested in in that sort of tail end of the field we've already talked about the Williams I, I do feel that they've come up with some very interesting ideas, certainly around the side pods and their cooling side of things. Alfa Romeo, unfortunately, as you say, they didn't get much running in the first test. But again, I do feel like they have a number of really nice ideas on the car. And in many respects, a lot of those ideas mirror the McLaren. Uh, Things that they've done at the front end of the floor with their underfloor tunnels, the edge details on the edge of the floor. But have they got the ability to take that next step. We've seen them do it in the past. You know, you only have to think back to sort of 2010, 11, 12, when they got on top of the last real big regulation change. So they could be, you know, one of those teams that do make a little vault up up the field. But everybody else, I think, will kind of be nestled in there around where you'd expect them to be. Okay. And I know that uh, at least personally, and I'm just going to ask this, I have seen more than a few people suggest that Mercedes was not entirely happy with the way things went at the test. 
is this just is this just like info space war from them or is this in fact do you think that there there are some things that they are genuinely concerned about at this point well i think first off mercedes have always been very good at playing the political game playing the media uh, and allowing them to uh, take what they want from whatever's said however i do think there are some bugs that Mercedes weren't quite happy with. We did see on the last day of the, the test that they added, uh, uh, you know, a, a stay on the rear of their floor to stop it from flexing too much, in order that they could try to counter some of the porpoising uh, that they were seeing out on track. I mean, again, I will mention the fact that everybody during that test had problems with porpoising to one degree or another, uh, and I think there's plenty of reasons as to why that was a factor, um, but. I think teams like Mercedes never even thought it would be a problem, um, and they're struggling. You know, they're now back at the factories trying to understand what what to do in order to to solve these issues uh, and how to add performance without exacerbating that particular issue. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing to me uh, about the porpoising, and particularly about the floor edges, is it seems like uh, teams that engineered solutions where the floor edge really uh, took maximum advantage of aeroelasticity because I can say that on tech time uh, to to seal the floor maximally tended to suffer more because that exacerbated the problem that was being caused. Um, we assume sort of with the suspension and tires interacting with each other. So it seems almost like engineering a solution that gets less good uh, above a certain kilometer per hour limit one that becomes a little bit leaky might actually be the way forward in terms of helping the team. Yeah, I mean, that that's the other thing to mention is the fact that there are a number of suspension tricks that have been taken away from the teams this year. So heave elements being the, the, the major thing here, uh, that they can no longer have the hydraulic elements and they can no longer have inerters. So the compliance aspect of what was being done with suspensions previously has been taken off of them. And that obviously then bleeds into having issues in being able to deal with problems like porpoising uh, at certain ride height conditions. And also on top of that, you have to remember we're running these cars very, very low to the ground. Uh, So if you run them too low, you end up in a situation where the floor stalls and you get porpoising. So the teams will work all of this out uh, by the time we get to the next test. And so I don't see any real problems emerging from it, but they will obviously have to look at aeroelasticity as well because the FIA are right on them in that respect as well. There, there is rumours going around that there might be some changes to the, the load and deflection tests in order to to prevent some of the more... Um, expansive use of it, let's put it that way. Uh, the broad interpretation, I think we could go for there. All right, so I would like to wrap up on what I consider to be a bit of good news, which is the regulations themselves appear to be working more or less as intended. And But I specifically want to focus on Charles Leclerc, who gave a breakdown of easier and harder following. And what interested me about that is it was all basically better except for this one zone between about a second and a half second behind. And this sort of dovetails with uh, Russell talking about um, the slipstream issue. How is DRS going to change? And what do you think is happening in that bubble uh, between a second and a half second back that is making it harder uh, for the cars to follow? 
Well, we, we have to remember that it's only Ferrari in this instance. We're only getting that feedback in many respects from Charles Leclerc. And I think they'll find a way to drive around that factor because if he's just literally come up behind a car in a straight line and, and, and t- tried to tow the car, there might be advantages from moving out right or left of that scenario in order to make this bubble disappear. Um, it, it's an aero wash problem. You're always going to have aero wash. The regulations have been designed to try to, you know, manipulate the way in which that wash goes over the rear car. But there is still going to be some small nuggets of that left over. And so what I think we'll see is that, uh, you know, drivers will get used to where that actually is in in the trailing position and try to alter their driving behaviour to to offset it. In terms of DRS, obviously, I know it's been mentioned that it could potentially disappear, um, but I do feel that these regulations are going to need it still, just based on what we've seen so far, uh, because we do have very little in terms of slipstreaming. So once you get out from behind a car, you really then need to be able to punch your own hole in the air because you've suddenly got all that airflow hitting the fr- the front end of the car, whereas before you were kind of in behind and in the wake of the, the car you were following. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come join us and enlighten us uh, as to what really happened at testing and not just our sad guesses. Um, where can people find you on social media? Where can they go look for your work? Best place, as always, is my Twitter feed, which is SummersF1. And obviously, you can follow my stuff over on motorsport.com or on summersf1.co.uk. All right. Well, I can't wait until the next round of testing and even more insight from you. Thanks very much, Matt. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks very much to those guys. I was paying full attention and I enjoyed it. You can't prove I didn't. Uh, But if you want to catch a little bit more of them, uh, they actually chatted for another 45 minutes, which you can catch on the Patreon-only stream. Go check us out at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. Coming up, we're going to hear from Twitter's Engine Mode 11, Dan Drury, who until recently was a Red Bull engineer. And in our Meet the Panel segment, we have Kyle Power, who will be talking engineering and olden days F1 as well. It's a really packed show, 
yet somehow we managed to fit it all into one single hour of programming. All that is coming up after this important message. This coming weekend on the 12th of March, it's the M4M Nürburgring 12-hour race on iRacing. This is an event that we've been planning for quite some time, and it's going to have 60 teams, including several entered by Missed Apex with some of your favourite panellists like Spanners, Matt Trumpets, Kyle Power and Alex Van Jean, all competing for trophies, prize money and glory around the best track in the world, the Nürburgring Nordschleife. We have a mixture of professional sim racing teams, as well as some real-world Nürburgring specialist teams, and a whole host of amateur drivers, and action is absolutely guaranteed. So search for Sim Broadcasts on YouTube. We're live from 9am UK time, Saturday 12th of March. Okay, so coming up after this next interview is our Meet the Panel with Kyle Power. But first, we're going to speak to an ex-Red Bull communications engineer, Dan Drury. He runs the very fun account, uh, Engine Mode 11. I will preface this by saying that when we called him, he was uh, absolutely in that wonderful bubble you, you get as a parent when you have a very, very small baby. And we were almost reluctant to continue the interview. We almost said to him, like, no, don't move. Don't move the tiny little bubba. Just just stay there. Um, and he, he got up from that kind of peaceful slumber to chat a little bit of F1 with us. So here's that interview coming up now. Here at Missed Apex Podcast, we are often baffled and bewildered at the mystery that lies behind the top names in teams. You've heard me complaining about pit stops being decided by people we we don't know. Suddenly the top driver might lose a race because of somebody who is under high pressure, who does a great job for a team, but we don't know anything about. Those people at Missed Apex Podcast we refer to, of course, as Derek, and I'm absolutely delighted that we have actually been joined by one of those Derek. So please welcome everybody, Derek Derrickson. No, sorry, Dan Drury, who until recently was working with Red Bull Racing. Good afternoon, Dan. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Now, some of you might know Dan as Engine Mode 11 on Twitter, where you take hot takes and no prisoners, Dan. Yeah, no sauce, just vibes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's become, well, you described it yourself as a, a meme account, but you certainly, you don't mind stirring the pot and uh, you don't mind letting people have a, a nice old conversation and a bit of banter in your replies. Yeah, make F1 fun again. Make F1 fun. And uh, I often will go in and troll your, your largely Max Verstappen fan base in your replies. Yes, along with uh, Bradley as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think look, a lot of people do take it seriously when there's uh, those kind of accounts and those kind of replies. But you have to remember, sometimes people are just having fun. And of course, you've been deep in the bowels of Red Bull as well. So so you know where the fun is at. Uh, can you just explain to us what your role was until recently at Red Bull? Yeah, so I was a uh, senior systems engineer. And basically that translates to sort of like glorified IT is right. the easiest way I say it. Um, but anything that involved uh, data streams um, or connectivity, it was my responsibility to 
make you know connect all the various parts of the business together so track side to the factory wind tunnel to the factory that sort of thing oh so when they're talking about uh, people in the factory being able to see engine data and being able to warn them about a a, a, a what's it or a guja about to explode that's going through yeah. your cables yeah too much vtech that sort of thing right and so how much capacity is there for you to ruin a race weekend in that role oh massively i could completely you know do the whole lot <laughs> so it's like the a total communications breakdown and uh and that's all from from derek drury yeah Dan, so Dan, Dan. there was like i think it was australia 2017 maybe in free practice free or was it two one of them and there's a message that goes out to daniel ricardo that says that uh, there's no gps data from the car oh. so i didn't break that but i was involved in fixing it <laughs> oh so that's interesting so even like from the car back to the pit wall that is all like a, a guy a systems engineer is having to set all that up, that up and when that doesn't happen alarm bells start ringing yeah yeah you say you didn't break it <laughs> allegedly <laughs> so i'm quite interested to to know like, what life is like in and around you know the red bull factory and and, and when you go trackside it's a massive organization so I've, I've worked in engineering firms of of similar size and beyond and you would not on a day-to-day basis be having cups of tea with the the ceo or the directors so how much do you see like the the named characters not calling you an npc no, no, well, no, that's fine. How, how often do you understand. see the named characters, the heroes of Red Bull? Yeah, so uh, Adrian, you see probably a lot more often, um, especially as he's, you know, dialed down his travelling to the track side. Um, but the drivers and Christian, you know, during the season, it's maybe once a day in the office. Oh, right, so they're, they're milling around. around. Yeah, yeah. The um, the drivers do come in in between events to use the simulator and talk to the engineers and that. So you you do see them about. Yeah, and so that uh, you know they're there. You know, uh, all right, Dan. How's how's the family? How's the data communicate communication cables? Have we got GPS this race? All right, yeah, calm it, down, Danny. That wasn't it, me. I told you. It's normally what's the Wi-Fi code, please. <laughs> Are they always on you to hook them up with like a free illegal cable and stuff like that at the office? Yeah, um, yeah. It's like, why yeah. can't I just plug my iPad, <laughs> you know, uh, iMac into this? And it's like, oh, geez. <laughs> so from where you are, how does the F1 structure work? Because obviously we, we know the, the head engineers, the superstar engineers, Christian Horner and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I guess it very quickly disappears down into teams, especially when you get away from the, the very vehicle-focused elements yeah yeah so there's you know entire departments dedicated to um, vehicle performance um, aero at the front of the car aero at the back Mm. suspension brakes and they're all split up into sort of large teams and then away from that outside the actual car like you said you've got uh, teams that are dedicated to the certain areas of the manufacturing you know we've got laminate composites it's it is a huge effort which is essentially just for to get two cars on a racetrack is pretty is is mental when you think about it. And obviously, like you're all friends with people in all the different uh, in all the different departments. How I'm interested to know how you guys within the teams see idiots like us on the outside trying to speculate about your car and going, oh, but look, the 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 Ghibli goo's going over the back of the fan extracting correlator. 
and then you're like, no, no, what are you on about? Yeah, it is uh, amusing um, to see some people's hot takes. <laughs> um, but sometimes, you know, people will pick up on something that perhaps maybe we've missed. So in terms of like pictures from Aero, um, sorry, pictures of Aero from testing. And, and, you know, you, you'll go through the office and you'll see everyone's got it blown up on their monitor. Sort of, oh, have you seen this sort of thing? But yeah, some of the um, more wild rumours do do get a hearty chuckle in the canteen. <laughs> Yeah, so the temptation is to to just laugh at us rather than set us straight because you're under quite a lot of restrictions there. Do you get a big kind of lecture to, hey, don't be going on there giving away all our secrets, guys? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the F1 teams have quite a strict um, social media policy. Um, Red Bull does in particular. um, And it's for the reason that, um, you know, journalists will follow your account it's a bit like my account, even mm. though, like we just said, it's all just jokes and banter, but they will try and pick up on the things and run with it. Yeah. So you've got to be really careful. So I'm going to immediately hit you with one of my fabled two-part questions. First two. of just all, two. Are th- two. only two. I know. I feel like I'm You're failing. lowering the bar for myself here. Uh, the first question is, who, like, are there classic, are there people whose takes are awaited just because they're so regularly entertaining? And secondly, I got to ask, are there like, do different engineering groups have different stereotypes inside the <laughs> office? Like as a musician, like a violin, violinists are always made fun of a certain way. Oboists are made fun of a certain way. Is it that way inside the office too? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, well, the drivers are always the first to be in the canteen queue because, you know, they just yes. have to be. Um, and in regards to the first part of your question, you know, just, just because it's you, Matt, I will say, obviously, we all sit around waiting yeah, for the local, waiting for, <laughs> waiting for Missed Apex. There you go. You, you know, you can soundbite that and use that. I knew it. I knew it. Any other podcast is trash. Yeah. Thank you. It's nice. It's nice to finally have that kind of that kind of acknowledgement. Uh, but look, now that you've now that you're out of F1, so you're, you're applying your, your trade in a non motorsport environment. Unbelievable. Uh, you can admit it now Two two things I'm looking for admission of. What was uh, you must have made a mistake that you've been hiding until now. And this could be the perfect platform to talk about it. And secondly, what have you nicked from the, the factory? Okay, so in terms of mistakes I've made, I'm not going to tell anyone because <laughs> part of the game is them finding it now I've left. Right, good point. And uh, in, in terms of things that I've lifted... Um, is that a trophy back there? Uh, no, I'm trying to think. I don't think there's anything necessarily... Is that, is that Daniel Kvyat? Consent. That's, why, that's where he's yeah, gone. He's in the cupboard. <laughs> but the, yeah, I do, I do have a sort of like... You've probably seen the background, the... Uh, cupboard full of various trinkets that were given and whatnot so yeah but in an engineering environment like that there must be just bins full of things that people like me would just dribble over yeah it's ridiculous so you know we have huge bins that with front wings in it and you know rip like wear rings and it's just they all get sent away to get crushed and it's <laughs> You know, oh you just no! Sort of, yeah, I know. You just sort of think, think oh, I'd love that on my office wall, or like as a coffee table, make a yeah. coffee table out of it. Yeah, but oh. for IP protection and all that, it just all gets 
crushed, sadly. No, oh, let, let's let's move on to to race day because you must have occasionally been out there for for the races. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were you you were a senior engineer, so did you get to decide who goes out from your team to sort stuff out? Like, oh, I'll definitely do Monaco. I might give Sochi a miss. Yeah, we do have that um, discussion, but usually at the start of the year yeah. to come up with a schedule of who's doing what. Um, to be honest, I, I didn't really need to go out very often. My role, you could do quite happily from the ops room or the factory. Um, so I tended to just do the shakedown filming day at Silverstone, um, winter testing, and then maybe the actual Silverstone race. Um, and then you know, let the uh, others travel around the world. Right. Well, that's enough for me. Um, I got, before I move on to like some more serious questions that I have, oh, yeah, be serious. I got to know who's got the best catering on site, oh, because okay. cause clearly you, you have been there long enough to be able to correctly answer this question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, best catering. So. And it can be uh, different. Like some people can have best coffee, some people best desserts. That's, that's fair. I'll give you that. Yeah. Okay. So I will say I'm not necessarily a fan of sushi, but the Honda sushi that they did in the little Honda catering was stuff of legend up and down the paddock. Nice. Surely the Italians have got the best coffee. Must do. Yeah. I've not tried any of theirs. (laughs) Hard to sneak in. Yeah, it's a bit obvious when you've got the uniform on, you know. (laughs) No, I suppose it is. Go on then, Matt. Hit us with your serious questions. Right. Well, this one, this one you have owed me. Uh, we've had discussions uh, in the past. Uh, Red Bull has used a separate fuel um, back when they ran the Renault engines. Um, they signed a separate deal for fuel. And you said there was a story about that. And I have been waiting for your NDA to run out so that you can tell us about it. <laughs> okay. So I will preface it by saying the way I understood it sure. is that... Uh, the Renault engine at the time was work like the works team were working with total, but like you mentioned, we signed a deal with uh, mobile one. Yeah. So that did involve using, like you say, different engine oils and whatnot. And, you know, you can lose anything or gain anything up to like 40 horsepower just by using a different. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just by using like a different, um, fluids manufacturing and what the actual engine's been built with in mind. Um, so yeah, you know, like the season where Daniel Ricciardo spent most of the time standing at the side of the track rather than on the track, you know, you could put that down to map. Perhaps maybe there was a clash there in terms of what he was allowed to run on. Oh, well, well, that that is an interesting bit of information. Uh, another longstanding question I've had is there was a, some time ago um, a secret building. I think it was Building 9, everybody called it, built on the Red Bull campus. AVL, the, uh, the, the engine people were involved with it. And I've never seen an entirely straight answer as to what that building was or what actually happened there and surely you can spill the beans about that now what's in the building dan yeah okay so i can actually give you the proper official answer building nine was or is a piece of tape over a door that if you open it is the cleaners cupboard (laughs) which someone put on after that uh, rumor 
Um, but in reality, that is now becoming the new Honda, well, not Honda, obviously, the Red Bull Powertrains building. Um, and before that, it was um, like driver in loop system right. was housed okay. in there. And then the majority of it wasn't actually that exciting. It was just a warehouse for spare parts. Okay. Um, um, so, yeah, it does exist. And it is now actually going through another transformation into powertrains. Right. Did did the Honda people ever leave, Dan? Come on. It's, it feels like they went out the door. It's Red Bull. Don't freeze their engines yet. We've, we've got this huge, big Red Bull project. And then suddenly Honda sort of wander back in. I, I think they never took their overnight bags home. I think they still had their locker. Mm, well, technically, there was actually no Honda staff based in oh, yeah. Red Bull Milton Keynes. Oh, this is has so, all over again. You know, they they were never there to leave. Technically, um, but obviously Honda had a facility in Milton Keynes as well, um, just like ten minutes drive away from Red Bull, and a lot of the staff from that have now moved from that site to the main campus. Um, which is, you know, in my eyes, I think is great because it's saved a lot of people's jobs to be, you know, blunt and honest with it. Um, There's a lot of people who are very worried and Red Bull just turned around and said, look, we'll have you. Yeah. um, I actually, I want to follow up on because I've seen reports that the engines actually, uh, they were going to be built in Milton Keynes, but now they're still being built in Japan. Did you... Were you around to have any insight into how that actually wound up being decided? Uh, no, to be perfectly honest with you, Matt. And I think it's probably going to change again. Who knows? I don't even think it's finalized what they're actually going to do. Um, the way I understood it was R&D and that sort of thing would be happening in Milton Keynes under Red Bull powertrains and then um, Honda in Sakura would actually do the physical manufacturing as the space wasn't available in Milton Keynes to sort of do all of that at once. Um, but that could have all changed by now. There's, okay. not, there's um, nothing but space in Milton Keynes. Milton Keynes is like <laughs> they had a really good idea for a town, left loads of room just to, oh, look, look, we'll put this. And then they got bored halfway through. That's Milton Keynes. Sorry, Milton Keynes. Come on. Oh, don't get upset at me, Milton Keynes. No emails. At least you're not looting. Whoa. And just like, uh, man, are we going to be losing people left and right? Way to go. Way to go. Sorry, um, surely. I did have one more question from the from the old days um, before I move back to the new days, which is Mario Ilian at one point was rumored to be involved with consultation on the Renault engine. There was a story that appeared in a not well-sourced way, and there was some kind of controversy was he, like what was his real involvement what do you know what was actually going on back then um so it's my understanding and again this could be completely wrong because all my sources hey are the welcome to this well. apex yeah, yeah. wrong but first i can't answer for certain because i don't know um just guess but, we're recording dan yeah okay sorry uh my understanding is that he was uh, offered to renault on a consultancy basis but they turned him down oh Oh, yeah. but like I say, it could be completely wrong. I don't know. So from wild spe- wildly speculate, from wild speculation to things you will know about. I really am always uh, interested in the human element of the teams and the increased calendar. You know, you, you've got out now, but you are a dad, and for you, 
it would be not insignificant to take on extra work weekend. And the, the worry is that people are being asked to do basically more for the same and that people will be pressured out of the door. Uh, and I know I've been in industries like that where there's a lot of away days. And what tends to happen is you get a lot of um, uh, men and women in their 20s. And then as family time rolls around, people start dropping off into other roles. What was the atmosphere in the in the team about the increased calendars? Yeah, so I've been quite vocal about this on Twitter and outspoken about it. In um, We are now really approaching that stage where you need to have the ability to have a rotating staff. Yeah. Especially with the amount of triple headers and things like that um, that you've now got coming in. I mean, we can have members of staff away out of the country for up to a month. And if they've got a young family or something like that, you know, it's it's pressure on their marriage. It's pressure on their partners. Um, it's not fair on them. You know, it's, I, I always said if I was young, free and single, yeah. then yeah, you know, yeah. I'd be, I'd be well happy. But um, like you say, as, as people get older and, and settle down with a family, it's becoming a lot more difficult for them to, to, to do these triple headers and, you know, they do it purely out of the love for the sport now. So I, I guess what you'll find that the people coming in now, I think it's not going to change. So that's kind of the reality now. Mm, so people yeah. coming into the sport will go in there wide-eyed knowing, yeah, you've got triple headers, there's 26 race weekends. But for you <laughs> old sweats <clears throat> that were there, you know, the extant staff, it must be pretty rough. And you, what you're facing is your job fundamentally changing. How realistic is the rotation and extra staff? I, I don't think it's realistic at all, mm. um, especially now in the era of budget caps. Um, I, you know, personally, I would like to have seen uh, a change or a provision to allow that in there without it affecting the budget cap. Um, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um I mean, it's just the mental fatigue on the staff, you know. It's the, the reason I left is burnout. Mm. Pure, you know, plain and simple burnout. I just, especially after the season we've just had, um, you know, a dramatic season and then the dramatic ending, and I just thought, well, I'm done with this. I'm done <laughs> with it. I'll just stick enough. to... I'll stick to uh, talking rubbish on Twitter. I, I think uh, Christian Horner might have, uh, was it Christian Horner or Helmut Marko? Someone was talking about, even with the top management team and the drivers, the length and the drama of the season had taken a, a mental toll on everyone. And I, I, I wonder with, with Red Bull, to overcome or even start to try to overcome a, a Goliath like Mercedes, it must have taken everything. Once, What was the feeling like? I guess kind of like mid-season, you go, this is, this is on. And then you realise you've got to give it, this is everything, it's now or never almost. Yeah, so I've always been quite an optimist. So as soon as Barcelona testing happened, <laughs> well, I think, or whatever it was last last year, I've forgotten if it was even in Barcelona last year. Um, but ever since the sort of the car hit the track for the first yeah. time, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. You know, and you sort of speak to people got and this. they're smiling and things like that. But um, yeah, like you say, middle of the season, feeling good. Um, Brazil happened and I think I needed to change my underwear after that thinking you know it was going to be a slam dunk with Lewis at the end of the grid and then that happened so mm. fair play to him um, and it, it, you know I was there was elation when we had Abu Dhabi and it finished but you know in the sort of days after and the weeks with everything that happened you know even I have to turn around and say you know it just it's not good it wasn't good, you know. So, 
in the in the moment, Max Verstappen is crowned world champion. I always get the feeling in the teams, and I think especially with the two front runners this year, that they both teams would have chosen the drivers' championship over the constructors' championship because there was so much invested in that. When the the, the flag comes down and he's champion, there must have been a day where you know you're not going to get affected by anything that result has been cleared it's been done it, the the dream is achieved uh, and it's it's interesting to hear that there was a sense within the red bull camp after that once that initial elation has gone down like did you you feel the weight of the controversy and and the history of it yeah yeah and you know like i've said that it would be a great shame for max verstappen if this is the only championship he wins because mm. In such a con- you know controversial circumstance, I I, you know, I think he deserves more than to have that over his head, yeah, over his only sort of championship. He didn't do anything wrong, no. you know. He just you know took what happened and and ran with it. But um, yeah, I think it'd be a great disservice to him if this is the only championship he wins. And, and to be fair, over the winter, you didn't have you know Red Bull people really banging and shouting and going oh no you know they, they it's the equivalent of uh in snooker you know if you if you get a, a ricochet and the black goes in off the cushion you didn't mean it you, you sort of tap the table you still yes but you still tap you know you kind of tap the table go get a pint and i think yeah. on the whole red bull have done that yeah yeah and you know i don't think i don't think they're going to turn around and sort of say oh we don't deserve it no no I, no, 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 no no one's, no one's going to say that yeah you know no one no one's going to turn around and do that um, but you know, I think if you sit down with people and ask them honestly, they will probably say, you know, that was the worst way to win it. Mm. So I, I gotta ask, um, it, it's always obvious when you watch, uh, when you watch the drivers on the grid and the lights are about to go out, you get the sense of pressure and, and stress that they must be under at the start. But did you, as it became increasingly clear and the people around you, did you find that the level of stress associated with your job was suddenly very different when the championship was like right there in your grasp? Uh, I think it definitely had, it, it was more like a roller coaster throughout the season, I think, in terms of the pressure that you felt. So, you know, after Silverstone and Hungary and things like that, you sort of, the pressure's on because you've just lost a load of points sort of thing. And again, like I mentioned with Brazil, seeing, you know, what Mercedes did with that engine and the result they got out of it, you know, you just sort of think, oh God, this is going in front of our very eyes sort of thing. Um, So yeah, it was very up and down, but then you have races like France where it was just, you know, a slam dunk victory and you think, oh yeah, you know, it's going to be easy all the way to the end. But yeah, no, it's just up and down. Finally, before we before we let you back to that wonderful Dad little life. bouncing baby that we we all but ripped out of your arms to get a chat with you today, Dan. Uh, what are you going to miss? What are you going to miss about being in and around the F one circus? I will miss probably the engine firing up for the first time, like of a new car for the new season. That's a very special moment, and yeah, being in the garage when it rolls out for the first time, it's not the same when it's on mm. telly <laughs> no um, i get there's a moment of oh it's alive it's real yeah but one of the hardest things i'm gonna have to adjust to now is actually viewing it on the telly with the world feed so where i worked in f1 for six years i became so used to watching telemetry stream 
that I actually watched the race basically through a glorified Excel spreadsheet. Like the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really going to be really difficult now not to have that sort of stream of info. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Uh, but I bet you've still got, you know, you've still got a Rolodex full of uh, Red Bull people that you can you can harass and bug. Yeah, I've still got Adrian Newey's phone number in my phone. <laughs> I mean, you're an IT engineer. Surely there is a solution to this problem of which you are aware. Uh, uh, yes, I'm aware. <laughs> I'm aware, apparently, supposedly, allegedly, you can pull telemetry data out of the F1 app and run a Python script to get like your very own timing screen. Okay, let's take this conversation online. Yeah. Uh, right, okay, offline. Uh, Dan Drury, thank you so much uh, for chatting to us. I hope you guys uh, like him as well. We'll try and bother you again du- during the season and get your now slightly less informed hot takes. But once again, you know, you'll be able to lean on, on the odd number or two in your roller decks. Yeah, if anyone takes me seriously, Spanners, that's their problem, not mine. Yeah, definitely don't follow. Oh, my goodness, you've got 23,000 Twitter followers. When did that happen? Uh, trash talking Mercedes for the majority of the season, I think. So you're like the opposite of Brad Philpot, but you're, you're you know, you're yeah, just, yeah, yeah, you're like, yeah. Me you're and like, him, we're sort of you're like you know. yin and yang, right? Well, yeah. that's what we should do for the next uh, show. We should have uh, Brad Philpot and Engine Mode Eleven Position Five on the same show. We should make it happen. Go and follow Dan by searching for at Engine Mode Eleven. Dan, get back to that baby, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, gentlemen. <laughs> Well, what a very nice man. Thanks to Dan for that chat. I hope to get him back on later in the season. Very chill vibe, wasn't it? Um, Now, that is the end this week of the proper, proper content. But if you hang around, we're continuing our Meet the Panel series. And I I hope you found these worthwhile. When we've finished with them, and apparently there's going to be one with me, meet me as part of the panel... I'll put them all together into kind of one mega episode of Meet the Panel. If nothing else, I hope it comes across how much I love these guys and how much we're a community of podcasters. Despite the size of the crew, uh, I don't think it's hyperbole to say we really do, as a Missed Apex crew, feel like an F1 family. And this season, as we started you know, our new adventure into 2022, I didn't want it to feel like they were a cast of extras spread thin over the season i wanted you to get to know them and hopefully like them so here's the next meet the panel so in our continuing series of meet the panel it's time to meet kyle power good afternoon kyle how you how's it going Good afternoon. It's very nice to join one of these during the day when it's not nighttime outside. It's, yeah, it's nice. Looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's nice to get nosy and a little bit personal. Uh, you and I, we know each other fairly well from, from karting and loads of time on screen uh, doing podcast stuff. Uh, but I do feel on a on a level, we do have an, an awful lot in common. Uh, we, are, we are both apprentice to artisan type engineers for example that's your your day job absolutely yeah um i'm now a boring quality engineer and more of a pen pusher <laughs> but i used to have a pretty crazy um crazy job in my former role at the same company where i used to run a massive electron beam welding chamber which is almost the size of a house 150 cubic meters welding chamber uh, and it was all kind of a homemade technology 
so to speak. So if it broke, you couldn't really call anyone to come and fix it. Uh, so I had all sorts of fun and games, cutting my teeth, uh, <laughs> trying not to kill myself and lose my sanity running that machine. But I got to get involved in all sorts of very interesting projects across most industry sectors. And it was really, really, um, it was a really, really fulfilling job. What's interesting in, in engineering firms is you very, very quickly get considered the expert at something and you get funneled into a thing. Someone shows you what buttons to push. Before you know it, the, those people have left the company and then everyone's like, oh, yeah, Kyle, he's the expert at the thing. And you're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but sure. Absolutely. I had almost that exact scenario where um, the I can't go into it exactly the technology but the way we generated our electron beam was unique and it was designed and made in house so uh and by one of the guys who invented it was one of the leading electron physicists in this sort of field and he kind of invented it made it and it was all homemade and machined in our own machine shop but then he retired there used to be like a whole team to run this machine and it ended up being me (laughs) <laughs> like they kind of told me and everyone sort of ran away he retired and then when it went wrong they're like right Kyle you've got to fix it I'm just like uh, okay did and you, it's um did really you manage hard. it though <laughs> uh, somehow I don't know how but yeah this this chamber was huge we had a massive electron beam gun that was about a meter and a bit long hanging off a huge gantry inside and when we used to weld at reduced pressures it used to create a lot of metal vapor so it was very dirty inside but the inside the brains of the gun has to be clinically clean so it was basically like, and this mm. and this old physicist used to basically say it's like doing brain surgery in a coal mine. And it's exactly that. You'd have your head torch on, yeah. your nitrile gloves, you've got your meters trying to bing homemade coils to get them to resonate at the right frequency and not fight each other. And just, it was very technical, but very dirty at the same time. Kyle, was it really called a gun or were you, did you just refer to it as a gun? No, it was really called a gun. I loved it. I loved my, well, I didn't love my electron beam gun because it really loved me, but um, it's, yeah, they are called electron beam guns. They are kind of wide in industry, but our one was <laughs> extremely powerful. And we generated and got the electrons in a quite a unique way, which was also a nightmare. If it, <laughs> like, I was supposed to have, I tried to put like a maintenance schedule in and I was like, right, I need to open up the cube. We used to have the gun inside the cube, created, um, kept in an extremely high level of vacuum. And I come to the conclusion that if it's not broken, don't touch it. If it's working, just don't touch it. Because microns make a difference. If you get something slightly in a few microns out, the whole thing would go haywire and you'd have a week of tearing your hair out, trying to um, yeah. trying to make it work when you've got lots of project leaders and managers saying, my client's like screaming for it. You have to make it work. And as me, it's sort of midnight, tearing my hair out, trying to, <laughs> trying to conquer this thing, which I don't fully understand. Firstly, tell me that you had laser gun operative on your LinkedIn profile. Uh, but se- no, laser no. gun operative. Well, you missed a trick there. No, well, we do have a laser department. Lasers are, lasers are different from electron beams. They're just not as powerful or not as good, really. <laughs> There's, look at that foolish spanners mistaking electron beams <laughs> with lasers. What kind of engineer was he? Uh, we had a similar situation where I got left as the expert of this, uh, this purity detector. You know, you're shining photons through photon correlation spectroscopy mm-hmm. is the is the term but the machine that did it i got left like you i was the expert of that machine and in the end i just i couldn't do it anymore and i had to I had to ring up the retired guy and he's like with a heavy sigh he was like ah fine he ended up setting up a little one-man band in his shed and picked up a really healthy consultancy fee so maybe that was his plan all along but it didn't sound like it he sounded genuinely peed off like i'm retired leave me alone oh. 
this sounds almost identical to my situation. <laughs> this guy retired. We did have to call him at one point and he did come back on quite a large consultancy fee, I think, to um to try to sort it out. And it was uh I was horrified when I asked some bits. I was like, how does this work? And I can't get this to work. And it was like, oh, it just sort of worked. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's not the answer I was looking for. But he was extremely good. But that's almost the, the identical situation that I found myself in. It's funny, man. If it's working, don't touch it. If it's yep. not working and you really can't get it to work, do consider it lifting it up in the air a little bit and dropping it and seeing if uh, if that does anything. That's a real <laughs> thing, by the way, guys. That's a the 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 drop test is like a last ditch. Like oh, I I do not know what else to do. Let's drop it. But uh, this explains why you have such an analytical mind, and uh, not only with the racing stuff on Mr. Apex podcast, but also very able on the tech. You are our suspension expert last week and and here's the thing here's the problem kyle with you mm. i say you're an expert and you shy away from that in every single uh, in every single element where you speak eloquently and you know all the information the second i call you an expert on it you oh no 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 not me because people like you who are capable shy away from any kind of credit like that so i'm going to keep arguing with you and call you an expert on various things <laughs> you you are certainly have the expertise to talk engineering but also, I feel you have the expertise to talk about racing. I've seen you karting. I know you you take it seriously. I know you drive a lot. Uh, whenever you get a chance to to get into a Palmer Sport car, you do a lot of sim racing. I've heard you talk about it, the way you talk about it. You clearly understand it. I, in my mind, you're an expert on racing. I'm very flattered, but I will contest that because I there are there are always people who are better than you out there. As Bottas just recently said, there are yeah. always people who are better than you out there and more knowledgeable than you so particularly on the engineering front i'm not massively knowledgeable but i have a keen interest so i know the stuff and particularly like with suspension i'm happy to go through and read and absorb all the information and try to uh communicate communicate it communicate that to others um so you uh, hang on so you're an expert communicator more than an expert subject matter (laughs) expert yes okay but with the racing stuff yeah i've done I've done a fair amount of karting in all sort of various forms and I've done a few sort of um, Palmer sport days and I've had quite a bit of time in some race cars now and stuff like that. But I would never sit there and say I am an expert on this because there are always people who've done more and yep, who are always better, but might not necessarily be as comfortable to try to convey that or explain it to other people. So I'm happy yeah. to explain stuff to other people, but I'm never going to sit here and call myself the best or an expert but there is there's there's definitely an an imposter syndrome with you but in people in general when they talk about uh, racing because obviously yeah none of us have ever stepped foot in an f1 car or Mm. or gone through the junior series trying to be a a formula one driver but like we always try and get people involved in our karting in our eye racing Mm. there is several levels down in motorsport and the experience of turning a wheel and having experience racing i i think is valid you can argue with me if you want the same way you don't find the best absolute best singers and talent necessarily on x factor or in the charts because they're all someone's niece or nephew in the charts uh there's a lot of good people all the way down all the way down even to us kyle um and i must say when you've taken me out karting when we went out to red lodge in cambridge Mm. You can pick what I'm doing from the cart behind, pull over, give me tips and find me time. So th- there's an expertise there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Cheers. I've done a similar thing with my nephew, who now is getting really, really quick. Uh, and he managed to win the championship that I never quite managed Aww, to win. Nice. Red Lodge, which is really nice to see. Um, 
and yeah, I used to do a similar thing to him. I used to sit behind him with a helmet cam uh, when they were allowed and film him and then take my laptop and then we'd go and review the footage and say, look, you're doing this wrong here and you're doing this wrong here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm quite happy to give tuition and advice, but I might be able to give advice on stuff that I necessarily can't do. I'm like, well, really, you want to be over there all over that curb and about half a second quicker, even though I might struggle uh, you wouldn't to do, do it, it myself. I know what needs to be done, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. And uh, when you took me for that that session, I, I broke one of the carts, didn't I? Because I, yeah. I kept hitting the curb and the front right wheel just eventually gave up and just flew across the track yeah. to the opposite straight. And they apologized to me. They were so like, uh, I was like, <laughs> no, I totally broke your cart. The cart shouldn't have broke. You should be able to absolutely hammer the curbs <laughs> in those carts. So I think there might have been a hairline crack or something in the stub axle, and then it just went. And um, that has happened to me, my team, when we were leading the British 24 hour cart race, which was heartbreaking. We lost the wheel. Now, let's talk about your karting then, Kyle, because, like you just said, so the British endurance karting, you've also taken part at the British Rental Kart Championships, which is an incredibly mm-hmm. competitive uh, championship. And you're probably just off the top, guys there there's like another pack behind like the top and mind you that saying that the quality has increased lately but you've taken your karting serious tell us a bit about your your karting journey well i kind of have i started extremely late i couldn't afford to go racing when i was a um a kid and stuff like that much but i was really lucky in these summer holidays from school you'd get all of like the super rich kids would go off on the school holiday thing yeah and then us scummers would be left behind street rats (laughs) but but the council used to put on a summer holiday thing for you know for the for the poor parents who couldn't get their mm. kids off to the holidays to send out somewhere. And my mum was really, really good. And she was really, really supportive. And she, so she used to take me to these karting things, which are like a nice oh. cheap, and we used to go to Haver Kart in Haverhill, which is like this, this weird little track, which is shut down now. And I always had a keen, I was always fascinated with Formula One racing when I was a kid. So I always wanted to go karting and she was really good. So she took me there a couple of summers. I managed to go there once or twice and it was, had some races and I was always pretty much the quickest out of other kids and yeah. i always put that down to just i just like racing i understand what a racing line should have been and yep. even as a sort of a kid i understood what what was required even though i might might not necessarily be able to do it myself I just interrupt quickly because it's, isn't it amazing how at, at that level or on a stag do or on a work do just taking the racing line wins wins you races yeah yeah unbelievably so and that kind of goes into how i fell into sort of karting competitively because when i was sort of um I was about 27 and there was a works event and there were quite a lot of people giving it a lot of lip and the mouth around the company. (laughs) And I was sort of quietly confident. Um, So we sort of turned up for that and I ended up pretty much dominating most of the, most of the event. And I was really quick and there was some really quick people in there. There was one of them used to race super bikes and one of them raced motocross. So they know about racing and they were pretty quick and tipped to be the favorite, but I managed to win. And um, it was one of the marshals actually was like, oh, you're pretty quick. You should come and race in our um, championship we do. And I was like, well, I can't. I haven't got my own car or anything. He was like, you don't need it. There's rental cars. You just use uh, ours. And yeah. I was like, really? This blew my mind and opened up an entire <laughs> world to me, which I didn't realize. So started racing in their sort of domestic, their sort of local little championship. And then after like a month or two, got an invite to the EKL, which is something called the Elite Karting League, which is a bit rough and tumble <laughs> and uh, uh, using their own carts. But it's something I'd seen online and thought, oh, I could never really get yeah. there. And then all of a sudden I was, I'd done like three competitive races and I was thrust into a random grid at the front in this EKL thing down in Dorset. And it was just brilliant. And I absolutely loved it. I yeah. didn't make a fool out of myself. And then I got invited back and the next round I was standing team manager for another team. We just, I, we, 
we started to run and all of yeah. a sudden people are coming to you as if you know what you're doing and i'm just you're like, the expert just again up <laughs> it's, it's, it's <laughs> the theme of your life is just you, you wander into places and then suddenly you're considered the expert and you're no 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 yeah. i'm just kyle yeah. just kyle just from the like, block <laughs> yeah indeed i was i don't know what i'm doing but i had a great great time and rough and tumble racing in that championship for a couple of years we went over and did a le mans 24 hour kart race twice which was really good in the heat um had a great night stint with that with sarah moore actually who's a multiple um w series podium finisher she's yeah. absolutely rapid she used to race in there so i used to battle with her quite a lot which is really cool she usually got the better of me she was mm. just better um so i did a bit of that and then i started getting into more into owner driver the british pro endurance championship in pro karts ah, and sort of i didn't know you wheel. did pro karts uh, yeah uh, yeah so they're like six hour races so just my mate had bought a car i went and sort of raced with him um then we co-owned a supercar together which we still have which is a ballistic missile oh, give us a go and- why can't i ever go <laughs> Uh, we haven't had it out for ages but when it does go out that the power band and that thing makes the trees bend it's just <laughs> you just get tunnel vision it's crazy um so when i raced quite a lot in that and then particularly when i got into two strokes into the road taxes which i think brad's been doing a bit of that recently yes and and that's that's a whole another another step up but it's funny one of the bottom rungs of sort of motorsport is one of the most brutal on the body <laughs> yes the yeah. g-forces you pull in the corners I mean, you could peak at sort of like two and a half, three lateral G with grippy tires. A and lot of broken it, it, ribs. Uh, yeah, I break my ribs twice. Uh, not through mm-hmm. crashing, just No, purely... just from driving. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard people saying that. I think Brad yeah. broke a rib doing that recently and then thought it was healed, went straight out and it just went again. Um, yeah. So that's just from the forces in the cart. That's pretty much, yeah. And yeah. not wearing the right body armor. I'm quite wide and chunky. I'm a bit of a sort of a mesomorph. And, uh, and yeah, you've got to fit yourself into the seat. And the, when I did them the second time, the first time I did them is because I didn't wear a rib protector and I thought I was being like a real manly, didn't wear it. And then I couldn't change gear when I'm driving my car on the way home because I'm just like, I, I can't even breathe or change gear. So that took me a good few months to get over. And then and then I tried a, the second time, I tried a different body armor and I was really squeezed into the seat. It was at a track called Lid down on the south coast and it was warm up. I come out of the last corner and warm up, full tilt, tiny bit of a power slide and just clip the curb. But it jolted my body. And I heard it. I heard it before I felt it. I heard the ping inside my head and yeah. then felt the pain. And I'm like, oh, no. So that was a horrible lap <laughs> crawling round to the pits, trying to get into the pit lane. And my team, I was running the team. Yeah, We were kind of renting the equipment off another team, but I was sort of team manager of my <laughs> little bit. And they were like, oh, no, like, we need you to drive. Can you not just go out and take some ibuprofen? I'm just like, nope. I can't <laughs> breathe. <laughs> oh, man, pride is the, the worst when it comes to like machismo and toxic masculinity. And I, yeah. I've certainly been guilty of it. I was there. Uh, I brought my team when i was younger to an archery range and i forgot the little arm guard little leather thing on your left hand thing i forgot it and someone pointed it out and i didn't want to admit because i was like in charge i didn't want to admit i'd forgotten it so i just like turned around like oh come on lads like you don't need (laughs) you don't need all that and then the first shot the thing it pings back and it leaves this big red welt across my wrist and i'm like oh my god that the pain of that was incredible and i couldn't show i should have just then gone okay i'll go and get the guard and let everyone laugh i was like no i i I loosed another five but each time i was moving my arm a little bit so it would hit a different spot like a (laughs) new spot (laughs) and in the end i had these like five welts that reminds me i did that once um when i was a teenager there was a girl i just got with this girl and i went around her house uh at the weekend her dad was out and and oh, she's like, oh, I've got an air rifle. Do you want to go and shoot some cans? I was like, yeah, brilliant. Out the back. And I didn't realize that you, sorry. I didn't realize that I'm 
you're not supposed to put the eyesight like right actually on no. your eye. No. And I didn't notice. So the first shot I did pretty much gave myself a black eye and I and I was like, she didn't see that. It's fine. And I'm kind of getting up from it. And I'm just got this tear running down my face. And I'm trying to act like I didn't actually do it. And then gradually during the day, you could see my eyes starting to come out. And by the end of it, because you sure you didn't hit your eye? And I'm, no, like, no, I'm completely absolutely fine. Not. I'm completely fine. Shut up. Oh my God. Men are, men are broken, aren't they? Oh, we're, we're idiots. <laughs> in, our, in our generation, for sure. Uh, but let's, oh, here's another way that you're an idiot. You're a Ferrari fan. And, and I, I try and talk to you like you're a people. And then you say things like, oh, the Tifosi are great. And uh, F1 wouldn't be the same without Ferrari. And, and it just reminds me. I don't say that. Uh, yeah, you I'll... do. You say all those things. <laughs> I've never been a Ferrari fan as such. I was a huge Michael Schumacher fan, still am. He's my sporting hero, which kind of contradicts with my own racing philosophy of yeah, being guess, clean as a whistle oh, yeah. and gentlemanly on track. We should say in karting and in sim racing, like you are like so polite. Like I, I think you would prefer <laughs> to lose than ruin someone's race. Yet yeah. your hero's Michael Schumacher. And I just and how does that work? I don't know, it's a bit weird. One of my first F1 memories is sitting in my brother's bedroom watching um watching the cars go around and this and, and this new guy who was causing a bit of a stir with a funny name and I was like oh I really like him I'm I'm gonna support him and I remember my mum was a big fan of him and stuff and I just started supporting him and what a guy to choose to start supporting and it become a way of life I don't know whether the same is with you but Formula One is huge in my life and I can liken back moments in my life or critical things that happened on what happened in the formula one this year so i was like oh this happened in 98 oh my god i remember that was the argentinian grand prix in uh, around about this time in my life so i used to kind of match formula one to my life and that was in the era of schumacher when he just Uh got into ferrari like i followed him all before that and his two championships but then when he just got into ferrari and fighting against the mclaren so it become kind of a milestone bits in my life really so I don't know why, but yeah, Schumacher was always, always my man. And I managed to turn a bit of a blind eye to the <laughs> darker side of him. Yeah, I don't know what you mean, though, Carl. Uh, Formula One for me, it's just a fleeting fancy. I don't know. Not, <laughs> not that into it. Not completely <laughs> obsessed by it. But at that time, it was a little bit blur oasis. You know, Schumacher versus whoever you know obviously it's some parallels to, to Hamilton in that they were there were a lot of anyone but Schumacher. Yeah. fans and i i may well have fallen into that category of just like <laughs> whoever's uh, challenging him next hackenen hill whoever's challenging schumacher I, I put my weight behind which is why you know there's people now who have gone from uh alonso fans then they became button fans then they become rosberg fans uh, bot uh bottas and then verstappen and i'm like ooh we see mm. you, but I can't judge too much because I was like that in 90s <laughs> onwards. Yeah, I just remember when I was sort of going into school, I was kind of one of these people who was friends of everybody in school, really. I played on a rugby team, so I was in with like what yeah. you called the jocks, I guess. I used to play um, guitar and stuff like that, so I was in with like the Grebos. And... loser, Grebo! <laughs> and stuff, but also I was massively into Formula One and not many of the cool no, crowd no one. were, so <laughs> in... In the mornings, used to get in the school bus. Used to get in early sometimes. I used to go and hang out in the IT centre and go on Planet F One when it was in like its first sort of guys. And I used to hang around with the geeks or the plebs, as you call them, because they're into Formula One. And mm. another one of them was the Schumacher fan. So we used to kind of get together a little bit um, um, and talk Formula One. So I absolutely adore that. And I remember my history book. We had to do the covers, and I think I put Schumacher's 
98 Ferrari on it. It was in the 98 testing. <laughs> I would, yeah, that's it. I was 13 years old and it was in my history lesson. And looking back, it must have been incredibly sad, really. I think I was the only kid with racing cars on their school books. And now <laughs> when we did our Who Are You Supporting in the Teammate Battle show last week, I think you disagreed with me on every single teammate battle. <laughs> I think you were supporting the opposite driver on all of them. Maybe, but sometimes entertainment is more important. Maybe. So um, maybe, maybe. But uh, yeah, some of them, I like a bit of um, controversy as well. And sometimes I, I like to go against the go against the grain sometimes. Yeah, you're so, edgy. You're edgy and different. You, you <laughs> don't even own a TV or jeans. I own, I own jeans. I have a TV, but I haven't watched it for about eight years because I ripped the aerial out the back and couldn't <laughs> be bothered to fix it. So I stopped watching TV and it oh, was good. <laughs> some engineer. Anyway, this has turned combative. Uh, I started off very positive about this uh, Meet the Panel interview. And then you started talking about how much you love Ferrari. Uh, and I kind of went off you a bit. But you guys shouldn't go off, Kyle. Go follow him at Kyle Power on Twitter. And of course, uh, watch him here at Missed Apex Podcast. Kyle, thank you very much uh, for your time. And I'll leave you to go and, I don't know, fire lasers and stuff uh not anymore i'm gonna go no. and push some pens and i've got an audit to do this afternoon oh, so thrill. that's that's always an absolute joy so i'm gonna go and try not to terrify people as i pull them up on stuff car power <laughs> a thrill a minute Well, I hope you enjoyed that it is march f1 proper is coming that means we're back to a full on-season schedule so as well as sunday's shows we'll look to have an extra interview or specialist segment midweek twice a month and then a couple of times a month we'll have uh, some patron only episodes where we'll kind of untuck our shirts and deliver some relaxed f1 and personal content as well so stop delaying and sign up to be a five dollar patron for the new season patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. Until I see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This is Missed Apex Podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.